This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. If you happen to have missed the first hour, you can find it on iTunes, on TuneIn, on Stitcher. Go back, check it out. You know, you, you may be just in the car for a few minutes, but then you're thinking, oh, I want to hear that story that they were talking about. Well, that's where you find it. iTunes, it's there 24-7. You can also go, just go to BYURadio.org where you can uh, download every one of the past shows we've ever done. 1,000, like 1,400 hours of content. Unbelievable. Is that how many? Or is that 1,400 shows times three hours? I don't know. The last number I saw was 1,100, 1100. something. Maybe so you, yeah. you times that by three. Yeah, that's a lot of work. We've been doing a lot of work here. But we got a great hour today. We've got incredibly positive news. This is this is wonderful news for Jeff Simpson. Jeff's not here. Cole's filling in for Jeff. Jeff and his wife have a brand new baby boy. I don't think they've named him yet. I'm sure they were thinking something like Matt, Matthew, maybe. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, Liam. Oh. Something like that. A cute baby boy, uh, nine pounds, 10 ounces. Little gift from heaven. Just a little gift. Little? Well, a huge <laughs> gift from heaven. Delivered apparently, barely, they barely got to like the lobby of the hospital. Just apparently inside the front door. Here's some audio. Oh, yeah. That's the gift that keeps on giving right there. Yeah. Kind of makes you want to have a baby. Another 18 years of that. But they made it. That's such a great thing because now, okay, you finally have your baby here. You count the fingers. You count the toes. You can't believe the weight of that thing because that thing was huge. Right. And then you just breathe a sigh of relief. So we we wish them both the best of luck. And uh, Jeff, have a great week off. Lucky. No. What do you mean, no? I just did that. Yeah, but isn't that just, that's a gift from heaven, blessed? A, a week off? Yeah. No. It's, it's, not like, it's not like you're sitting back with your feet up. No, but you get to just sit back with, she gets to sit back and just be glad that the baby's out of her. You just went from a wife that's really uncomfortable yeah. to a wife that's like hyper-concerned. Yeah, where's the baby? Where'd Don't you go? roll over on the baby. Every once in a while, my wife still wakes up thinking that, we have a baby, and I'm rolling over on it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Like when the grandbaby's staying over, she always worries that I'm going to hurt the baby. I don't know why. It's not like I've ever hurt a baby before. Hmm. I mean, intentionally. Sometimes you just roll on a baby. Just roll over. Um, we got a great show we're going to be talking uh, about, um, of course, empty news. Some of the news stories that... Uh, you know, the Matt Townsend news stories, the ones that you don't really care about, but you got to hear because there's great lessons behind them. They're uh, possibly funny. Some might be possibly funny. And we will be doing rubber ducky news because that's important. Yep. Uh, also, um, one Oklahoma school apologizes for a Hitler quotation in their yearbook. Hmm. Like, is that, is that something you apologize for? Well, I mean, yeah, you probably ought not. I mean, that shouldn't make it through the editing process. That's kind of my point is that does an apology fix that? I don't think it does. Well, but. no. But you got to do something. 
<laughs> I think they offered a solution, though. I mean, it looks really bad. Did they? We'll find out. Yeah. Is, uh, we'll get to that fun. Plus, seven ways to measure relationship health. Hmm. This will be really Lengthwise? good. Lengthwise? Like, no. Seven ways you can, oh. personally. You can't just say it's like four. I, we've married 14 years. That's healthy. Uh, is it? I'm just, you're the expert. I'm asking. Well, I mean, I mean, there's been there's been mistakes that have taken longer than 14 years to fix. Wow. So maybe it's not about duration. Okay. Might be about quality. Mm. You know, maybe it might be about how many times you get in a fight at Chuck E. Cheese. It is you a know? source of some people's. You know, familial, you know, conflict. So there's just a lot of conflict. Have it over some pepperoni. Um, we'll get to that fun ahead. Plus, um, just anything we can find to to lift your life even for a minute. I have a new Oreo if we have time. Uh, what is the deal with Oreo? <laughs> Oreos, they're, they're just, as a company, they keep producing all these new flavors. Yes. And it doesn't seem like very many of them stick. No. They just kind of pop up for a few weeks and then they're gone. Yeah. But really, the bread and butter, so to speak, is the classic. You mean the... the Bread and butter flavor. The black and white classic Oreo. Mm, But they keep trying to iterate other directions, and it keeps coming back the other way. Yeah, I don't think it's... No, they're not trying to replace the original, but they're trying to keep people interested in the brand, I think. Right. I don't know if it's working, but... Well, we keep mentioning them. I tried the firework Oreos. We can talk about those. I kind of wish other... Cookie companies would pick up their game and try to make it as exciting as Oreos making it. Mm. I mean, some cookies need a little do-over. Maybe they are. They're just not advertising as well. Like a Fig Newton. They, you need a Fig Newton makeover. You can't fix a Newton. It is what it is. <laughs> it is a cookie with fruit. Well. Sort of. Yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> All right, we'll get to that. But uh, first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? A police officer in New York City has been left in critical condition after being dragged for more than two blocks by a driver trying to flee in a stolen car. The officer, identified as 35-year-old Dalsh Vivi, uh, approached the vehicle in Brooklyn on Saturday to question the driver over reports of gunfire in the area, but the driver quickly took off. The officer managed to get off two gunshots, but was dragged for two and a half blocks before he was freed. Wow. When the driver turned down a different street, James P. O'Neill, the city's police commissioner, said the driver of the stolen car later crashed and abandoned it, and the unidentified teenager was taken into custody after turning up at a hospital with a gunshot wound believed to be caused from the police officer being dragged by down the street. Several other people were also taken in for questioning, though no details were released on their identities or their role in the incident. So kind of scary there. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Remember him? Uh, yeah, he kind vaguely. of disappeared. Uh-huh. Kind of disappeared. Is near. Oh, I found that an interesting fact. Apparently, when he was a U.S. attorney, which he talked about quite a right, bit, right? Uh, he put Jared Kushner's father in jail. Yeah, no, right. That was a big deal. So that's probably why he's not that's in the administration why anymore. Kushner didn't want him in there. <laughs> that made me laugh over the weekend. Uh, so Christie is nearing a settlement in a lawsuit filed by a nurse who was quarantined in 2014 after working in Sierra Leone during the deadly Ebola outbreak. Uh, according to court documents, attorneys representing Christie later uh, said later last week to uh, they said in a letter last week to District Judge James Clark that the governor reached the agreement to settle in principle with Katie Hillcox. The letter did not include details of the settlement. Hillcox is working with Doctors Without Borders in West African Nation when the Ebola outbreak happened. She was stopped when she arrived at Newark Liberty International Airport and was quarantined. Remember, she was kept in the parking lot right. in a tent. And she was trying to get out, and they wouldn't let her out. Later, 
Uh, she tested negative for Ebola and was allowed to go to Maine, where she lived at the time. The judge in September dismissed federal claims that Christie violated Hickox's, uh, or Hickox's constitutional rights because of the quarantine, but a U.S. district judge ruled that she could proceed with parts of her lawsuit alleging false imprisonment and invasion of privacy. Really? And she was kept in the parking lot of that hospital. They wouldn't even let her in the hospital because they were afraid she may have a Ebola. She came from there. She was helping people with Ebola. Right. So it's I don't interesting. Know, interesting story. Harriet Thompson nonchalantly raced to the record book Sunday when she, the 94-year-old became the oldest woman to run a half marathon. How old? 94. What? Oldest woman. I, I guess it's unusual, but I don't know why people make such a big deal about it, she said after finishing the rock and roll marathon in San Diego. Jeez. I feel just like I did when I was 16, but I just can't move as fast. Uh, what, she, in 2015, she became the world's oldest woman to complete a full marathon. That was just a few years ago. Thompson, two-time cancer survivor, used uh, and she uh, uses to raise money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. She has brought in 100000 over the past few years and 15000 this year alone. Wow. What have you done, Matt? Not much. You can give us a time that Matt has to beat next time he goes for a half marathon? Just finish. <laughs> I mean, I think finishing itself. That is, is a long run. Yeah. Wow. I, I believe cars are created for a reason. Totally. Anything over three miles is just unreasonable for me. I agree. Just a thought. Uh, and finally, police had to break up a loud party in the wee hours of the morning at a hotel, an otherwise ho-hum event that would, wouldn't be making headlines except for the group that was involved. Mensa. You know who Mensa is, Matt? Aren't they the brilliant, uh, smartest people in the world? Right. They're the exclusive society that accepts only people with very the very highest of IQs. It seems that Mensa members were at the Elite Hotel in Sweden on Saturday night when things got a little out of hand. They were partying in the corridors of the hotel, which you're not allowed to do here, says the hotel director. The police were called. Though the officers noted that revelers immediately calmed down and that no action was taken against anyone. Still, since the news of the party made the rounds more than a week ago, Mensa membership applications have increased tenfold. <laughs> and they say, we're in two minds about this, of course, says a spokesperson for Mensa Sweden. We do want new members, but perhaps not in this way wow though but see now they're getting this reputation of being party animals they're the smartest partiers around Mm. (laughs) they're like we don't want those members yeah Uh, sorry hey uh ariana 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 grande she she went back and had her another or had her concert finally or she what what she quit her concert tour after the Manchester uh, bombings, right. she went back and had a benefit concert. Did you see any of that? Uh, no, I just saw, well, I saw the part where she got emotional. Okay. But yeah. y- you know what? Wow, that's cool. I was watching it on YouTube yesterday live. Oh, really? And Because I know you're a big Ariana Grande fan. Well, no, it was just it popped up. And then uh, I was watching some of the uh, concert this morning. You, it's uh, all on BBC Music, I believe. So you want to watch it there? Is that what you do? On you YouTube? Just, you just... You get here early, and then you just watch concerts. Well, no, I had I was working as I was going along, but you kind of check in on things and see what people are saying. Yeah, people were really mad. Uh, the headlines were saying that London was reeling from the attacks. Yeah, and like a nation that faced down the the Nazi threat from Germany and all. The, it's like we're reeling from yeah, this. There's because, three guys on a bridge. I know, but this is over and over and over. They just keep having an attack every couple weeks. One person on Twitter said that reeling is people who microwave their afternoon tea. That's something I'm reeling from, but because apparently that's improper 
Oh, you're not allowed to microwave it? No, you're supposed to use a kettle. That's proper English tea. Really? Just something I read. You read too much. I'm sorry. I'll stop. I mean that in the good way. Uh, large inflatable obstacle course um, is is on the loose. Phoenix police are investigating the theft of a large multicolored inflatable obstacle course. I'll keep my eyes out. Yeah, look, be looking for it. Police say the open-topped red cargo trailer and the eight-piece obstacle course were stolen from a commercial yard in southwest Phoenix on May 7th or May 8th. By the way, my birthday. That was is, the 8th. Is there some correlation there? Probably. Oh, they, wow. You know, maybe. I mean, I'm not saying it, it is or it isn't. But should, we, we, should we look in your backyard? Don't. Was it a especially fun birthday? It was a real, we had a great inflatable obstacle course. It was awesome. Uh, they're now looking for the course, which is about 180 feet long, 20 feet wide when it's inflated. It's about worth about 35 grand. So like the American Ninja set with a ball pit. Right. Hmm. I wonder if they have one of those tennis ball guns. Oh, nice. Which is, I think, the greatest. American Gladiators. That's my favorite ever. Right. That'd be fun. I would love that. Uh, rubber duckies floated in pothole as part of a British village protest. And they were singing this song. Residents of a small British village fed up with the potholes have staged a very unusual protest. Ruffled residents of Steeple Aston, Oxfordshire. What? Huh? Put a small army of rubber ducks in rain-filled potholes last week to draw attention to the poor state of their village roads. Now, does this work? I'm not sure. Apparently, Parish Councilor Martin Lipson donated the ducks, which had obviously previously been used at other charity events. There were some pretty beat-up ducks, apparently. Here on campus, there's a road that I drive just on the, the west side of the Marriott Center. Yeah. There's like a, an, a cargo entry garage on yeah. that side of the building. There's a huge hole. Right in the middle of the road, and yeah, I, yeah, totally. I, I, I'm by that by that time when I leave the parking lot, I'm talking to my wife on the phone, and I miss this thing every day. Well, you, what you might want to do is, is pay attention. Yeah, put a rubber duck there, and, and then the, they'll fix it. They actually filled it. They filled the pothole yeah. the other day. But it's still it's got a wonderful. It's still got a little divot. Develop, well, a little bit, but you can you know it doesn't destroy your suspension and alignment every day. I, I like to, take but maybe it the rubber duckies is the way to go. Yeah, it is a humorous protest. Everybody, I mean, imagine that you call everybody, hey, bring as many rubber ducks as you can. And everybody brought their rubber ducks, and then they put them in the, they put them in the potholes, and they made a scene. And that got everyone talking, right. and then bada-boom, bada-bing, the, now the city council or the county council is talking about it. You know, we understand they're in poor condition, but they're not a safety problem. Shame is Get a wonderful weapon. Get your ducks and get out of here. Things can happen if you, uh, you know, apply Put your ducks shame. in a row. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's mm-hmm. the key. They're also bright yellow, so no one's going to miss the pothole anymore. That too. Right? That's, a, that's not a bad idea. Better than a traffic cone. But then you have to keep filling it up with water because the water could evaporate. But So if you just keep filling the potholes up and then put ducks in them, mm-hmm. you may be changing the world. One duck at a time? Yeah. It's really good stuff. That's how you, that's how you make... That's how you make uh, that's how you make change in this world. That's real change right there. Rubber duckies. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about seven ways to measure relationship health. You know, relationships, they matter. And uh, if they're healthy or not, you got to be on top of it. You can't just hope they will be. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger and lead healthier lives.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing more complicated, I think, than relationships. And uh, some relationships feed you, they lift you up, they take you to another level. Others seem to kind of suck you dry. They just take everything that you've got, uh, some nourish, some, you know, not so much. And so joining us today to help us through how to measure relationship health is uh, Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White. She is a professor um, and chair of the Counseling, Adult, and Higher Education Department at Northern Illinois University. She's a licensed counselor whose focus includes working with individuals and families facing tradi- or transitions. And uh, we're excited to have you back on the show, Suzanne. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much, Matt, for giving me the opportunity. You bet. We love having you on. And um, it really is. It's Sometimes it's it's almost like we don't make the time. We don't have the time. We don't think about our relationships until they become problematic. That's unfortunately very true. I think life has gotten so busy that when you hear a friend or a partner say, I'm too busy, it used to be kind of a put-off. But a lot of times today, it's really a truth that they're sharing. Is... Um, I guess the problem with it, too, is it's there's a lot that goes into a relationship, but if the relationship is pulling you down, if it's exhausting you, it's, it's, they're, they're not disposable either. It's not something usually that we can just throw away. Um, so how do, we, how do we kind of get into you know, making the best decisions with our relationships and make sure we're investing in the right way? You know, part of that is recognizing that you have a limited store of energy to put out in a relationship. And we have to recognize, though, as you noted, that some relationships are a part of who we are, they're a part of our history, and they very well may need to be a part of our future, especially when you've made a long-term commitment to someone. So it's really recognizing your own limits and what you can bring to a relationship and trying to trying to calibrate your energy with what your expectations are. Mm. Because sometimes our expectations in relationships are a lot higher than um, what they should be. Right. And, I mean, the weird thing, too, is, uh, you know, they always joke about you don't, you don't pick your family. You don't, they kind of – you're just born into that. But yeah. then you, you do have – you have relationships at work. You have relationships, you know, if you have hobbies, if you coach your kids' teams. Right. A lot of just the activities that you pick up in life also kind of direct what relationships you're going to have. They really do. We really, human beings, we're programmed to want to be social. You know, finding our, finding a connection, finding our tribe, finding it's, you know, for finding a church group where we feel accepted, for helping our kids find the soccer team or find the scout troop where they feel good about themselves. Relationships are really what allow human beings to grow and to become their best selves. Because we, when we show up in life is when we give ourselves a chance to explore pieces of ourselves that we wouldn't normally experience if we're sitting at home alone watching TV. Right. Um, so we have to recognize that every time we show up in life at an event, if when we show up you know, online in the grocery store each week with the same checker, that we are creating relationships, and we have to think about you know what is it people we want to have to offer others, and what is it we're expecting others to offer us. And when a relationship's not bringing out your best self, it's kind of it should kind of be a red flag to you to recognize um, what are your shortcomings or are you having expectations that aren't realistic, and are you putting your energy where you really need to? Are you going? Are you chasing um, 
tilting at windmills and til- you know going after dragons that you're not going to be able to slay. Hmm. Just kind of bringing real is a realistic expect uh, expectation to what relationships you're trying to create. So how do we go about uh, this assessment of our kind of our interactions, our social life, and our life in general? Because they really are. This isn't just about relationships. It's because every relationship impacts every. Uh, the, the humans, but it also interacts yeah. with everything we are and everything we do. Right. You know, it's about being your best self. And to be your best self, you have to make sure you're giving yourself space and time. A lot of universities and businesses go through a kind of a program prioritization process where they really do some in-depth self-examination to see if they're meeting the needs that they think they're meeting. Do they have the resources available to meet those needs? And there are kind of like seven different steps that we can kind of take, and seven seems like a lot, but really a lot of it's pretty basic. Like one, you know, you're in a relationship and looking at the history of that relationship. Is this a relationship that's part of a larger fabric in life? Are there multiple people involved? Um, were your great-grandparents, you know, best friends or cousins or siblings? Is this someone, you know, kind of like extended family? Some relationships are such a part of a bigger picture that we really can't just say, I'm going to cut my losses and head out. So that's the time when we have to think, you know, what is it we need to do to limit our expectations or rethink what we're willing to put into a relationship. Hmm. And and these can be in you know, the bigger picture. It could be family-related. It could be um, school, you know, your kid's school. It could be your faith group. It could be a lot of the, your neighborhood. You know, that's those are other relationships where you may feel, you know, you've got to keep your house painted. You've got to keep your lawn to you. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. there's a lot of expectations to keep maintain healthy relationships. And so if there's a history there and a bigger fabric, you really need to take into account the weight and the significance that that these choices will have for you. Well, that's and, it. Really, it's true, and I mean, it. You have to kind of know where you've been, I guess, to identify where you're going. Just because we've had a history doesn't mean we need to keep it going. But right. it also it might mean you also don't just eliminate it. Maybe you just back out of it a little bit. Maybe yes. you slow it down. Yeah, sometimes you need to do these things. You don't, you know, like I said, some relationships you can't just walk away from, but others you you kind of reprioritize and you don't make the same energy commitments or time commitments that you might have um, in the past out of a sense of obligation. Um, You know, there's some obligations we have to honor, and and we can't just, you know, life isn't about one person being happy with everything they do because we're part of bigger systems. So it's learning to how to function within the bigger social system so that things are working well for everyone, that the people who come in contact with you feel better after being with you than they would, you know, if they hadn't run across you. And and And, I I guess, too, um, the history, having had a history, could also educate your expectations. I mean, if you yeah. keep if you keep if you have never seen something happen out of a relationship historically, you probably ought to quit expecting it to happen. Absolutely. You know, that's one thing if you're and I get tickled because you know a lot of times couples will say, "Well, he's never done this or she's never done that." I'm going, "Well, yeah, she hasn't." And so magically it won't change. And then there's, you know, we expect people to be mind readers in relationships 
like, you know, you, you'll hear a couple say, well, he should know what I'm thinking or he should know, right. you know, what I want him to do. But, you know, and, and there's some relationships that are kind of, I think about the roller coaster history where there are ups and there's downs. And that's the way most relationships are going to be. There's going to be the highs, there's going to be peaks, and there's going to be the valleys. Um, you know, and they kind of mimic the way life goes itself for a person. We can't function. No relationship and no person is really capable of functioning at peak, at peak functioning every minute of every every day, because we don't. We're not built that way. Humans need time to kind of regroup, to kind of go, you know, to take some time off, build their strength back up before they can, you know, make that climb again. But if you've got a relationship that's just been a flat line, there's not. You don't expect yeah major change unless you do something to say something's got to give because you know your your history tells you you know people show you what they want you to see and if all you've ever seen is kind of that you know monotone flatline relationship that's that might be who that person is that they're not capable of you know giving you you know a relationship's not going to present thrills and chills because that's not who that person is. Mm. So it's being really realistic and using the past as kind of a benchmark for what you want the future to be. Yeah. Another another point you make is that you, you have to check their needs and your needs. It's kind of a needs analysis. Right. You know, can you be, you know, I think about the, you know, a lot of people are, we hear the expression in counseling, people are needy. And really what that is, is that they want someone to let them feel they're needed in life. That And we need to feel we matter. And we need to feel that we're able to be that person somebody dreams of spending their life with or someone we want to be that good friend. We want to be the good daughter. There are a lot of things, these kind of bigger images. And if someone's needs are bigger than what we're able to fulfill, we've got to rethink what is it we need to do differently or do we need to kind of have a a sit down and have an honest talk? Because sometimes we can't be somebody else's ideal anything. Because we don't, and if and if we're not meeting their needs, we need to have an idea of you know where our shortfalls are. A lot of times, and I think about couples counseling, where he's not, you know, I, I have needs they're not being met. But if you've not acknowledged what your needs are, it's hard for someone to meet them, and you have to kind of be upfront and honest. And if you have needs for time spent, if you want your friends to be available, you know, for lunch, but they work full time, well, you know, maybe your needs aren't realistic. And you might need to adjust what you're expecting from a friend, or you might need to have a friend readjust what they're expecting from you. Mm. And uh, it's really interesting. Um, it seems like it might be even easier at times to look at what others need from you mm-hmm. versus what you need. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, so really going about looking at our own needs. I don't know. It seems like for some of us, they change so often. They do, and they change, you know, because we don't. And I don't think any of us have a sense. We we know our basic needs, and I, you know, we can think about Maslow's hierarchy and you know, kind of survival, food, shelter are there at the at the first level, and autonomy and you know, self actualization are up at the top. And sometimes we need someone who's going to be there for us when we need someone to help support us, you know, when our basic needs are at issue. Other times we want someone who's going to, you know, stimulate us to think differently, to get outside of, you know, our what we think our limits are. Our needs change, but we have to think about, I like the way you said it, the emphasize what is this person asking of me and do I have the resources to be this person that mm. they want me to be? Um, and if it's in terms of partners, spouses, um, sometimes, you know, the spouse will bring out the best in someone 
and they'll they marry we marry the person we imagine that our spouse to be not necessarily the person our spouse is <laughs> and that's something that can be kind of a when we when we realize that everyone has feet of clay it can be kind of a shock and so sometimes we have to think you know is this person still able to meet my needs or have my needs changed and how can we figure out the best way to make this relationship work. That's good. Good stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with uh, Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White. She is a, a PhD, a professor um, uh, from the university, uh, from Northern Illinois University and the department there and, and chair of the Counseling, Adult, and Higher Education Department. She's walking us through seven ways to measure relationship health. Stick with us. We'll continue the journey and the assessment when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Relationships, they're, they're the greatest thing in the world, and yet many times we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to create some changes, we need to you know, decide how to move and how to negotiate the relationship better. One better way to do that is to measure relationship health, which is really an intentional act of evaluation. Uh, you know, universities have to reevaluate their programs, their processes. Companies reevaluate. But uh, do you ever reevaluate your relationship? And it doesn't mean it's like, a ah, let's get rid of this one. It might just simply mean let's learn and adjust and figure out what needs to – what really needs to change to make a relationship better so that you can feel better about it. Joining us to talk about it is, is uh, Dr. Suzanne Deggs-White. She's a Ph.D., a professor, and the chair of Counseling, Adult, and Higher Education Department of uh, Northern Illinois University, a licensed counselor focusing on working with individuals and families that are facing transitions. And again, Suzanne, thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. So you've taught us already that we need to focus, if we're evaluating our relationships, we need to look at the history, how we kind of came together, mm-hmm. uh, how, how, how we've kind of progressed. We've got to look at our needs, our needs uh, and other people's needs when it comes to this relationship. What do they need from me? What do I need from them? What else do we need to make sure we include in a relationship assessment? One, you need to look at the success of the relationship overall. Are you? Is it going well? Do you usually feel good about things? Is it getting stronger, or do you feel like a relationship has become more of a bad habit? Sometimes, you know, our relationships are just kind of their fallbacks, and we might be someone's fallback callback, or we might be someone's um, first first priority list. And it's important to understand what does success look like for you with the relationship, and you know how how does the person feel about it. I worked with one couple, and every year on New Year's Eve, they kind of re, re, they joked about they would both have been in the military, and they joke about re-upping. Mm. That they would re-enlist in their relationship. They talk about it once a year. You know what's going well. What would they like to change? And recommit to one another on New Year's Eve every year. And it sounded kind of um, formal, but you realize what it did, it gave their, their relationship kind of a rhythm that they knew that they could kind of check back on success and, and check back with each other. And it wasn't a high-pressure situation because they both knew to expect this opportunity to kind of um, reevaluate things. Well, that's what's neat about the military is you really – you're committing you're, – you're recommitting – 
every two or three years, every right. time you re-up. And, and a lot of us make that commitment 20 years ago, but we don't necessarily feel like we're, we're still in the commitment right no. now. You're, that's a great way to put it. It is because we don't. We just we do it, and it becomes just a habit. We're just yeah, I'm married. Yeah, I'm with this person. Whatever. But we forget that we did make that commitment, and we really should. When something becomes that big a part of our identity, because we do most relationships. That's how we form our identity. Who we are in relation to, whether it's mother, father, sister, brother, husband, wife, you know, child. That we forget that we ought to reevaluate, you know, what what's what's going on in this relationship. You know, are we doing the things that we should be doing to ensure that we continue being successful, hmm. or have we forgotten how? And sometimes we forget. In some relationships, we get so busy, even in the most intimate, you know, partnerships, marriage, we forget how to show we care, and we forget to measure ourselves against this idea of being a person who is sensitive, caring, loving, and accepting of another person. And that's got to have re- – okay, it's one thing to just you know hurt your partner. It's another thing to become somebody you don't like. Right, right, and 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 we do because as you know, we we spoke at the very beginning of our time this morning about how busy life is, and it's sometimes so much easier to put work ahead of family or work ahead of our relationship, our primary significant relationships, or put other things ahead because we assume, oh, you know, my wife will understand, or you know, my who my blank will understand because they know me. And yet you turn into someone that maybe your partner doesn't know anymore. They don't recognize who you are because you've given so much of your energy outside this primary relationship that you know, you've know you kind of forgotten who you promised to be when you first enlisted in this major relationship. Yeah. What um, – I mean, I know another point you end up bringing up is about kind of your emotional investment. Um, talk about that because it seems like many times – you're physically fine, you know, you're socially fine in the marriage. It's just emotionally where you you can't yeah. do it anymore. Sometimes you feel, because, you know, did the demands get to be too much? And it's part of that becomes us wanting to be everything for someone else. When, you know, if, if you kind of go into a relationship presenting your very best, if you're feeling like you can't allow that facade, if you feel like you can't be honest and say that you too might have needs, you might run out of energy and run out of steam always trying to be that superhero that you think your partner fell in love with. And none of us can continue to give at that 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 peak energy level that we we feel when we you know if most of us you know spring and summer and summer romances in the air and there is an energy we get from this new relationship high and we're able to do things we'll never be able to do again it's kind of like that adrenaline rush in the middle of an accident when when 90 year old women can lift cars off of people right. trapped underneath because at that moment in time you need that resource but that resource can't be there 24-7. Human beings aren't made that way. And if we try to give at that peak level to a partner, when we start, to, you know, if they don't ever see that vulnerable side of us, we might one day feel we have nothing left to give, that we can't be that person anymore because we've set the bar so high for ourselves that we can't allow, you know, we can't allow our partner to look behind the curtain mm. and see that we're human. So you got to be aware, you know, what what is the what are you giving in the beginning? Are you setting yourself up for failure, or are you expecting your partner to be that amazing person you imagine them to be back in, during the courtship? 
And I guess to some degree, as you're as you're learning from these assessments and these questions, you might realize you're you're really expecting your partner to just be too much. Yeah, you know that can happen. That our expectations are too high. That we feel they're not giving enough, but they may have given all they can possibly give. And so sometimes we have to cut other people some slack. We we have you know are you having unrealistic expectations of a person is easy in the beginning of a relationship because they're showing you their best self. But I think we sometimes are you know surprised when that best self facade starts to fade but we've got to realize that we you know that that we're not going to be able to be our best selves all the time either right. no, none of us can are capable of doing that well and maybe that also means that it's time to get a best friend it's time to get a, yeah. a, a you know a hobby group that you can go work with it, and, you know you can't expect someone and i don't think any anyone was would want to be counted on to be everything to somebody else that puts a lot of pressure and I think if I think about friendship groups, the one thing about friendships that's so different from primary relationships are one they're you know they're, well they're both built sometimes on choice and option, but the idea of friends that you don't you you kind of choose to be with them and they accept you in ways that sometimes a partner won't. You can be your less best self with friends, and a lot of them will be understanding because we we see our friends as human, and they're, we know that they're not trying to put on a show for us. And they can be themselves, right. whereas we might want to hold that, you know, we, we might have an image that we have as being, because there's a lot of books about being the perfect partner, the, you know, the perfect, you know, spouse. There are things out there about that. But, you know, being a perfect friend means accepting someone's humanity and, you know, finding people that accept us as we are. Mm. And sometimes we should realize that um, one person wasn't meant to fill all the voids in our own emotional neediness. I guess, too, as you look at your relationships and doing an assessment is is one of the things is, is this is this a necessity? Is this a relationship I have to keep? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, when you look at um, you know, if divorce, you know, if you're with a partner, divorce should not be the first option. You know, to, you know, working, you know, you should think about how do I need to change or how can the relationship shift. But then with other relationships where maybe it's an old friend that you know is going to bring you down, or maybe you're you know you're coaching your kid's team and you don't have time, you're not doing a good job. I mean, there's some times where you kind of have to think maybe I need to pull back so that the experience is better for other people. We have to take responsibility that we may be, you know, a negative force in some relationships because we don't have what we need to keep that relationship going. Mm. And if it's not a necessity, you know, maybe maybe you don't need to try to spend energy in something that you're going to wish you hadn't spent energy on in the first place. And it doesn't mean you're going to abandon everyone, but it it, it might be be a very smart choice for your life to to yeah. find yourself. It might be, you know, it might be, is it someone that takes you away from the relationships where you should be present? Um, when we talk about, you know, in toxic friendships, another area I think we've spoken about, you know, kind of the question is, do I feel better or worse after being with this person? Yeah. And if you've got people in your life where you feel worse after spending time with them, you do need to rethink whether this is a good investment of my time. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they're family. Even if they're family. You know, they, well, you know once a year, twice a year, you show up where you have to and, and you look at it as this is a commitment I made. I don't have to worry about this family for another 12 months or six months, whatever the family requires you to show up at. And just say, I can, for, I can do this for my kids. I can do this for my parents. I can do this. Yeah. You kind of find a way to tell yourself that this, this is worthwhile. And, and we I, do 
justify things. Well, and I guess part of this is you've got to have a pretty clear idea of of the future benefits of this. Right. You do. You do. And, and that's part of that relationship history piece. Like, you know, what is this a big is this a, something bigger? Is this a bigger piece of my life? Am I focused here on this negative energy because I'm being selfish or am I really, um, you know, in the middle of something where this has to be a part of my future? And, you know, and if it's not going to be part of your future and it's not going to make a difference, you know, in two years, two months, five years, you, you, you can cut yourself some slack and say you don't have to be all things to all people. Mm. Because, too, the, there's a lot of data out there, right, that shows that, uh, you know, relationships do take it out of you. They do impact yeah. your health. They do. You know, and it's funny because even um, they've done a lot of studies, especially with older adults in relationships, because the importance of having at least some friendship. Usually if, you, if someone says they have one best friend, they're going to live longer and be, their overall well-being and physical health is going to be great, you know, much better compared to those people that don't have a person to call a friend. Um, and it's important to know, you know, as, as people get older in life and there's, you know, we think about how church groups are a great place for support, other social groups where people can get together, it's that sense of mattering. So we know we need to matter for us to have optimal physical health. But when they did studies with people that had difficult relationships or unpleasant, you know, friendships and family relationships, their health suffered more than the people that had no relationships. Really? And so detrimental relationships are worse than having no friends in your no one to call a best friend or no one no no good friends in your life unbelievable so it's important to think about you know if if you do have a relationship that is bringing you know that that you feel is 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 weighing on you or it's keeping you from feeling good about your life if it's something you dread having to live up to that commitment for it's you have to think you know kind of long term is this going to be good for me or is it going to be something that's going to draw me down from my optimal in a state of being, even yeah. as I turn 60, 70, 80, 90. Oh, yeah. I mean, and um, I, I guess this a lot of this is just teaching us that there is there's a there's a there's a plan here and you have to be intentional. You have to figure out how to reprioritize life and relationships if you want to remain healthy. It sounds like a great way to put it to sum it all up, Matt. Absolutely. I mean, in the end, it's still your life. Right. It's your life, and it's finding the best way to lead the life that works the best for you and for you as part of that larger system. Yeah, good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Suzanne. Again, Suzanne Deggs-White is her name. You can find out a lot. Uh, just uh, She does a lot of writing on Psychology Today, has a blog there, and wonderful uh, insight from her work there at Northern Illinois University. We'll take a break, my friends, helping you be the good in the world and assess and evaluate yourself and your life. You can't hurt yourself by just learning how you're doing. We'll take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, evaluating, how often do you evaluate your life? And 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 how many times have you sat there and thought, I jeepers, I got it. I hate my life. I'm dying here. I need a life. I need a job. I need whatever you think you need. 
Do you ever just get stuck in that rut and you're thinking there's no way out? I don't know how to change. I can't change my job because, you know, I don't – I'm too old to change. I'm too old. I'm whatever. We always have these excuses. Well, if we're not evaluating, we're setting ourselves up, right? If we don't know regularly how we're doing in certain things and actually getting some feedback, which is hard. I get it. It's embarrassing. It's You don't always want to sit down and say, so, honey, tell me what it's like to be married to me. <laughs> Many of us don't want to go near that because that could get ugly. But in the end, without the feedback, you're just flying blind, right? You have to figure out where we want to be. And so think about it just in life overall. Are you where you want to be uh, professionally? Are you where you want to be socially as far as your social life goes? Are there some changes that we could be making? We don't have to make them today, but we could make them over the next year or two professionally that might set you up to be in a better type of situation. Are you? Where are you financially? Where are you emotionally? How about spiritually? Do you feel like you're spiritually where you need to be? Do you feel like you used to have a stronger spiritual life when you were younger? Uh, so it's some of this is just being willing to slow down and ask the questions. And you hear these people that go, they take a vacation, and they on the vacation they spend a lot of time evaluating themselves and and their conditions. And in the end, I mean, that sounds like awesome. But if if you can't do that. You could just make it a habit of maybe on your drive, every time coming home from work, just on your drive this evening, on your way home, just evaluate, how am I doing? How do people perceive me at work? How? What are some changes that, that uh, need to be made? What do I need? Am I getting my needs met from work? And just start going through some of those questions that we, uh, we went through with Suzanne to evaluate, are my needs being met? Are my dreams and goals working? How did I even get to this job? Was it an accident or is it really what I want to be? Is it aligned to my highest values and principles? It's just evaluation. And it doesn't mean you, you have to quit. It doesn't mean you have to even make a change. It just means you can start learning. So Challenge you to do that and, of course, do it as well in your relationships. Also, remember, it doesn't mean you got to just divorce now because we all the answers are no. It might simply be we have to rethink how we look at the relationship, how we approach it. Helping you uh, learn to be the best you, you can be. When you're a better person and you feel better about yourself, I guarantee the world will be a better place as well. So that's uh, hour number two of the program. We'll take a break. Come back. Stick with us. Helping you uh, be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here. Buckle in, folks. we got a lot to talk about. Uh, of course, it is Yo-Yo Day. So if you ever had a yo-yo, today is the day to uh, bring it out of storage and start yo-yoing. 
Were you a big uh, sleeping cradle, what they call it? Uh, did you know all the tricks? I knew some of them. Yeah, I didn't know any of them. I had my butterfly, the Duncan butterfly yo-yo. Oh, yeah, those were the best. That makes the tricks a little easier. Had a couple Mickey Mouse yo-yos. Did you have any that were, would light up when you'd spin them? Um, I think I had one of those. I mean, those are like the, the Cadillac in. of the yo-yo? Not really. If you could get a Duncan lighting up yo-yo, oh, yeah. then you know you've arrived. I think I had a glow-in-the-dark one at one point. My son got one for his birthday. Really? My uh, How's he doing with that? Well, he goes, Dad, you have to show me because I started playing with it. And uh-huh. I'm like, wow, this is fun. And so he wanted to play with it, and so he starts – he throws it down, and then he starts swinging it around. Yeah. I'm like, whoa, 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 we need to go outside. Someone is going to die if you keep flinging that thing all over the The original house. fidget toy. Um, Yeah, yeah. I guess you could say. You know that what way. I mean? Back, yeah. I mean, back in the day. Well, I guess a switchblade was the original fidget toy. <laughs> Probably. And then, but yo-yos used to be. Some kids would just carry their yo-yo to school, and then at every recess, they'd be fidgeting, pretending to do tricks. Wouldn't, wouldn't the original fidget toy be a rock? Probably. Yeah, rock a stick. Yeah. 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 Good thought. Just a thought. Just a thought. <laughs> just a thought. Yo-yo day. By the way, it's also drive-in movie day. This is this is an important day uh, because I think if you haven't been to a drive-in movie lately, you're missing an entire population of people that uh, you can't find anywhere else but at a drive-in. There's just something special about people that can spend all night at a drive-in in the back of a truck with eight kids, it's all of them in their pajamas. It's where I first saw E.T. Oh, really? Yeah. My parents took us to the drive-in. It closed a few years later. It's- Oh, did it? Darn yeah, it. condos. It's you know, great Everyone memories. needs more condos. Yeah. No, I loved it. We take our we take our kids about every four years. Uh, we thought it was going to be like a yearly tradition, and then see my, my know, a lot of weird stuff went down. Movie theaters have you know seats and air conditioning and mm-hmm. better sound systems and a box you hang on the window. Yeah. So yeah, we'll yeah. go there. Sorry. It's a good. It's a good. Uh, good life. So uh, you know, if you haven't done it lately, and if you don't have a drive-in movie near you, it's worth traveling for. In fact, you have to travel because you'll need a car to to get into the movies. But uh, take some blankets, right? Take some lawn chairs and uh, some antibacterial soap. And I like to take antacids because I eat a lot of junk food there as well. Hey, it's a. It's also going to be an interesting day today. We're going to be talking about what went wrong with college sports. How the NCAA, according to our guest today, they're in trouble and uh, they, they, need to, they need a makeover and it's not enough to just have a few fixes. Like it needs to be completely revamped. Right. Big problems. Not making enough – maybe not focusing enough on where they should probably be focusing. What would that be? The student athletes? N- no. Oh. They tend to focus a lot there. Well, yeah. They don't tend to focus enough maybe on academics. A lot of the money but, isn't going to academics. But isn't it about sports? Well, it's Cardell Jones' old tweet, I ain't here to play school. Oh, right, right. <laughs> That's what we're talking about. Right. That's exactly okay. what we're talking about. Now we understand. You are here, and it's being subsidized. All these athletes then end up being subsidized because these teams aren't making as much money as they need to be making. Hmm. And yet it's costing a fortune. Right. So we'll get into that fun. I mean, I don't want to blow up a bubble. I mean, I don't want to burst the bubble on anybody, but, you know, most college sports teams aren't profitable. Yeah, I wrote a paper on this in college. It was fun. Did you? How did that go? You know what my solution was? What? If you can't fund yourself, 
then you're an, you need to be an intramural sport. Just be on campus. Be maybe regional. Maybe, no, but maybe there's hold laws. A, there's a bake, laws now. A bake sale and get a bus and you can drive to the next college. Holy and have a, cow. Have a, it's not worth the money to send a team across the nation to play in front of 10 people. It's true. It just doesn't make logistical, doesn't make any economical sense. Maybe they just could, you know, Skype it in. <laughs> Skype the game, yeah. <laughs> it just, I mean, it might work. You, you'll see so many. And, and, like, college baseball is a big one. You send these teams across the nation to play in these games and no one's there. And then you've got the big five. What do they call the big five teams? The big five conferences. conferences. Yep. Power five. Power five. There's mm-hmm. how many – How. If you're not in a Power Five conference, you're probably losing money in your sports department because you don't have a TV deal, you don't have marketing, you don't have all these extra. But but hundreds of teams, hundreds of schools still have teams. They do. They all do. Every single one. So what would happen if there was a revolt and everyone just started closing down their teams? Yeah, I don't know. And just focusing on getting people ready to go work for the rest of their lives. <gasps> I know. Sounds horrible. Lame. Or you could just go to a drive-in movie. You could. Because it's drive-in movie day. They could put that money into making drive-in theaters, movie theaters better. (sighs) It's just sad what's happening to this world. We uh, will get to all that fun. Plus, the headlines from Terry South. uh, Just the news you need to know. The local and state... U.S. news that uh, that's important to you, Terry. Let's get started with that. What's going on? A federal contractor has been charged with leaking classified national security into agency document on Russian hacking before the 2016 presidential election to online media outlet the Department of Justice announced Monday. <clears throat> Check out this name. Excuse me. Reality Lay Winner. Yeah. 25. It's a great name. Of Pluribus International Corporation in Georgia. Reality Winner. Yes. Admitted to purposely leaking the information, prosecutors said she was arrested June 3rd. Releasing classified material without authorization threatens our nation's security and undermines public faith. Uh, This from the Deputy Attorney General Rod uh, Rosenstein said in a statement Monday. People who are trusted with classified information and pledged to protect it must be held accountable when they violate that obligation. Winner had top secret security security clearance and an internal audit found that she was just one of six people who printed the leaked document and the sole person to have made contact via email. There's a story out uh, yesterday about Russian hackers getting into voter information, mm-hmm. right? And they did it in Arizona and a couple other places. That story came out before the election. She's the one that leaked the document. The NSA knew it was her or one of these six people because the document, the website, The Intercept published had a crease in it, so they knew it was printed it wasn't just like an electronic document yeah yeah so they knew there's only six people that have access to the document to print it they talked to those six she admitted it and found the email in her email or whatever something like that and then the other the other side of it is there's an espionage act from the 1930s that is being used here and it's supposed to you know giving it to foreign uh foreign agents basically yes does this qualify when you give it to a media organization when the information is for the public good. Well, and then Jason Chaffetz came out and said there's a better way to to be a what do they call a whistleblower. a whistleblower? Right. Than you know, giving it to the breaking media. the law. Right. But in the end they said that uh, the Obama administration would have prosecuted this too. Because in, a, in effect you take that oath, you violate yeah. the oath, the penalty no, I is think jail. It's huge, especially cuz the leaks are incredible. There's so many of them now. So reality winner 
It's a great name, though. It'll be a great name in prison. <laughs> and, a fun love tid- it. and a fun tidbit. One of my best friends here went to high school with her. Oh, really? So where are they now? You where never know are they now? Who those, where those Wait kids from high school will be. Wait reunion. In other news, the average American credit score in a high, a high in April, according to recent FICO data, up about one point from last fall. The average score hovers around 700, the highest it's been since 2005 when FICO first started tracking the data. Additionally, the share of consumers with subprime credit scores below 600 fell to a new low of about 40 million, or about 20% of the U.S. adults who have those scores. This number is down from its peak of 25% in 2010. Wow. So, you know, good job, America. Yes. I guess. Um, uh, Competing with Amazon's Echo and Alexa's assistant, Apple on Monday announced, introduced a new Siri assistant speaker called the HomePod. Dumb name. The voice-operated speaker mirrors that of its competitors, though Apple's new hardware rollout boasts the ability to connect with Apple Music and send text messages. Siri will be in addition. How much do you think this costs? So you got the Amazon Echo at $179. Yeah, okay. Google's just a little bit more than that. What do you think the Apple speaker costs? I'm going to bet it will be a little bit more than both of them. $450? $350. Yeah, because Apple's just better than everybody. Period. A lot of these, a lot of these devices are used to set timers and play music, which are things your phone does. Yeah, and you're going to spend three hundred fifty dollars. So but it's can... more than it's a speaker. Oh, you're right. And it can eavesdrop, and it could send you to court. Right, and it can. <laughs> Apparently, spy. we've had stories that do that. Yeah, yeah, and, and it can get your kids to buy things and purchase, and your family to purchase things you didn't even know you were buying. Right, because yeah. you were talking about it. You got to pay for that convenience, Terry. Uh, Apple announced also Monday that Siri will be able to function across devices, have more of a natural-sounding voice instead of the robotic voice that's there now. Maybe maybe the first time you ask for a 30-minute timer, it'll just set it instead of saying, uh, what? Pardon me? I can't hear yeah. you. Which is what oh, it does to me. nothing more frustrating than... Which is why I don't use it. It's easier... At that point, if you have to repeat yourself, just unlock your phone and set the timer. It's the right. same amount of time it's and frustration. so much faster. Uh, the company also hinted at upcoming iPhone capabilities, whatever that means, because it's, you know, your phone could fly. Good job. Also, other announcements include the all-new 10.5-inch iPad Pro. Wow. So they have a really big one. They have like a 9.7, which is more your normal size, and now they have a 10.5. So the size of like a piece of paper almost? Almost, almost a sheet of paper. We're almost there. Hmm. Okay. And finally, they're bringing uh, Hank Williams Jr. back to Monday Night Football. Yes! And uh, all his rowdy friends. And all his rowdy friends. Do you remember why he was taken off Monday Night Football? No. Uh, because, let's see, he broke ties with ESPN in 2011 with his controversial remarks about then-President Barack Obama, in which he said Obama playing golf with then-Speaker John Boehner was like Hitler playing golf with Netanyahu. Wow. Yeah, so they cut them loose then. But they're cool with them now. Are you ready for some football? <laughs> Isn't it weird? I mean, how much power these entertainers have. Right. I mean, and they speak publicly. I mean, we've heard a lot of um, a lot of comedians now getting in trouble. Bill mm-hmm. Maher's now in trouble for things he some, he's been some... caught saying but has been saying for years. Yeah. Yeah. It's, in, it's intense what's it's a, happening. It's a new day. Kathy Griffin. Well, I mean, if, at this rate, we are going to lose all of our comedians. See, the Kathy Griffin thing to me was baffling because she 
went ahead and did what she did with the yeah. uh, the fake severed head thing. And then the next day came out and had a press conference where she apologized, but then said, hey, now I'm being bullied. Yeah. I'm like, well. They're ruining her didn't career. You, didn't you ask for the the attention? I mean, don't you know not to touch the Trump rail, the third rail of politics? What are you doing? <laughs> Everybody knows you don't go near that. Did you see the photo of the guy mowing the lawn with a tornado behind him? Yes. That was in Canada. Holy cow. Uh, see, I'm thinking like Kansas. Yeah, but it's in the plains of Canada. Cecilia Wessels took the photograph of her husband, Thunis. T-H-E-U-N-I-S? Yeah. Is that his name? Sounds Thunis? like Tunis? 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 Tunis. He's pushing his lawnmower Friday as a funnel cloud loomed over him in the backyard. That's more than a funnel cloud. It is. That tornado is touching the ground almost. Oh, here's some audio. Yeah, it's chaos. Um, so he's out there pushing the lawnmower. She posted it to her Facebook page. says, my beast mowing the lawn with a breeze in his hair. You know, I, okay, so let's, uh, so why would Tunis do that? Um, he's, There's got to be a backstory. Well, mainly because uh, he said there was no danger. It was he looked out. He, you could see the storm was moving away from them. Yeah. So he just went. Eh, I'm going to mow my lawn. Mow my lawn. They said the entire neighborhood was on their back patios taking pictures. I mean, the whole street and was he's there. Out no mowing. one, no one left. He was just mowing the lawn. She took no, a picture. You know that's not the real story. What's the real story? story is his wife said, "Wow, the neighbor's yard looks really nice." <laughs> They sure mow their lawn regularly. Are we ever going to mow our lawn? And then he's like, fine. And he did it. He chose to do it right in the middle of a tornado. Wow. Pretty sure. I would do it during a tornado just to get rid of all the grass clippings. Oh, that would be awesome. Then you, you wouldn't just, have, yeah. just shake them in the air and they just, they're gone. There'd be no blower. You wouldn't yeah. have to rake anything. It yeah. just, it's gone. It's not a bad idea. It's brilliant. That's pretty crazy, uh, little view. Did you hear that Harvard um, apparently accepted a lot of a bunch of people, and then ten people, incoming freshmen, were then uh, their acceptance offers were rescinded. Hmm. They said no, you're not coming because they found that some of these freshmen had been posting hateful memes. Oh, so they tracked down, they followed up on these guys, and then they found out that they're they're not necessarily living up to the standards of Harvard. Hmm. So you're out. You were in. Now you're out. They do check out your social media quite a bit. Yeah. Apparently, yeah, you're in trouble. So I guess the only way to do it is make it all private so no one can see any of it. And you got to be careful because it could be just, I mean, it could be some group, uh, some of the members joked about subjects including sexual assault, the Holocaust, death of children, certain ethnic or racial groups. Right. That's always good material. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, you know. These, there's Harvard's like no, you you're not allowed to be a part of our club. Right. I mean that's a big deal. These this is I mean think of how much money they will have lost because they didn't get to go to Harvard. It is a, it is a reflection of you because you chose to click on something to share it with other people. Yeah. And, and you probably they, uh, probably each one of them would say, oh, that's not really how I feel, or. That's not really a reflection of me, but it is. It's, it's, it's what you chose to share. It's already it's already hard to get into Harvard. 39,000 people applied for the class of 2021, and they accepted only 2,000 students. Oh, wow. It's crazy. Anyway, see? Be careful what you post. It'll get you. And it's good to see that uh, some universities are, are taking – the college life seriously, right? So up next, we'll be talking about unwinding the madness. 
Think about March Madness. It's time to unwind the madness. What went wrong with college sports and how to fix it? Uh, We'll be talking with the author of the book. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the purpose of collegiate sports is a way to help students with different talents and help them receive an education through scholarships, right? That was that's that's why we have sports on college campuses. But but is that morphing into something else? For many, it's really more about the sports than actually even the studies. Have the NCAA derailed from their original goal? Here to speak with us today is Gerald Gurney. He's an assistant professor of adult and higher education at the University of Oklahoma and the author of the book Unwinding Madness, What Went Wrong with College Sports and How to Fix It. Uh, Gerald, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Matt. This is quite a comprehensive uh, of, uh, I guess, uh, approach to this issue of the NCAA. And now now walk us through. So the National Collegiate, Collegiate Athletic Association, you're, you're basically proposing they be, they be like, I guess, broken down, torn down, and because they're struggling trying to, to, uh, to reinstitute new rules to create a change in, in, in sports. But what is your proposal? Right, Matt. Even the most casual observer of college sports today um, knows that something is amiss. We have seen repeated instances of academic fraud. The North Carolina case is is the most um, obvious one. We have seen nearly every... um, long-held tenant of the NCAA, um, such as amateurism being challenged, the pay-for-play argument, um, the um, ineffectual efforts of college presidents to um, affect the the changes that are necessary in the NCAA. So my co-authors and I, and and I I need to give them credit as well, Andy Zimbalist, who's um, probably the most respected economist in college sports, is one of my co-authors, and Donna Lopiano, who's an expert at Title IX, a former women's uh, athletic director at University of Texas, um, all feel very... um, very strongly that college sports is in educational, ethical, and economical crisis, Mm. where um, big-time college sports is unsustainable. Ninety percent of them are operating in deficits, tremendous student debt, totaling $10.3 billion dollars. Holy cow. Students are paying in the last five years to sustain their programs. And I suspect BYU is one of those programs that needs student fees in order to exist. Hmm. There are many programs that are paying up to 80% of the operating expenditures of an athletic department. 
each year student debt towards athletics specifically goes up about $4 billion devoted to keeping things going. So University of Central Florida, for example, is just beginning a, um, a water park for the, specifically for their athletes. Clemson University wow. has laser tag and beach volleyball and a bowling alley and a barber shop and, uh, and now sleeping pods to give athletes a place to, to have a nap. Unfortunately, very little of college sports resembles in any way, shape, or form uh, the pursuit of education. What it resembles is attracting 17, 18, 19-year-old kids who are recruits and keeping them there. Hmm. But you hear it's so crazy that 90 percent of these or 90 plus percent of the schools are having financial troubles when you hear about how much money they're – I mean it makes sense. But there's a lot of money in this, right? There's a, there's a lot of ticket sales being sold. There's, there's a lot of money being made, but then it's just not enough. Well, well Matt, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of money floating around. The problem is that athletic department's mentality is to spend everything you get. Hmm. They have no stockholders. Not only that, they have the advantage of tax exemption. So, for example, when a booster has a suite in BYU Stadium, they are writing off 80% of that, of, uh, of that cost to taxes. Now, that, that's all fine, but who's paying those taxes? Matt, it's you and me and everyone else. Right, right. So it, it gets a little bit ridiculous when most of the money seems to be funneled into more barbells, more dumbbells, more um, very expensive facilities, and, of course, the salaries of coaches, the salaries of athletic directors, conference commissioners, all of the administrators. So everyone's making out quite well, except for the athlete. Right. Yeah. Is, is, is this why so many athletes are crying to be paid? Like, we want to be paid in college. Yeah, of course they're crying to be paid because they're smart. They look around. They see all this money, and they're saying... Where's mine? Hmm. And in addition to that, when you listen to them very carefully, what they are, what many are saying is that the education that's being offered to them is not meaningful. What happens is, we first of all, we admit our most vulnerable athletes who have severe academic deficiencies. About 10% are functionally illiterate. 95% read below the ninth grade level. We let them into school, and we funnel them into friendly majors with friendly professors where they do little or no work to achieve, to um, maintain their eligibility. Hmm. And um, it's also a recipe for academic fraud, and that's what you see going on right now. Even the NCAA's Director of 
Director of Enforcement admits that academic fraud is at an epidemic level. And who's responsible for all this? It's college presidents. The, the NCAA's board of directors are all college presidents. They have the power to change this. They have the power to um, make the NCAA an efficient operation that benefits, truly benefits the student athlete. But in fact, they have been miserable failures. Hmm. So they're, they're, I mean, they have the power. They, they probably do know the problems. They just aren't fixing it. There, I guess there's probably too much pressure from the boosters, right? You have a lot of people that love this. Exactly. We make the argument that it is in the, it is not in the president's self-interest to buck the system, to make it right, put it on uh, a different course. So we argue for what most nonprofits have, and that is independent board of directors, former college presidents, former athletes, former um, athletic directors that are not uh, that that don't have a conflict of interest when making big decisions. So, um, and and then we offer a number of other um, concepts that I think the reader will find quite interesting. No, I think it's boy, it's about time we we have a more public discussion about this. And yet, again, we we so celebrate the March Madness that your book's kind of named over, named about. We we love the football tournaments. We hear here at BYU, we hear over and over how bad they're trying to get into one of the big five conferences. Is it in the bigger five conferences? Is that the only place any money is being made? Or even in those conferences, are the majority of the schools not making the money? Well, the Power Five conferences abscound about 75% of the college football playoffs and leave 25% for the group of five and all of the other divisions. That doesn't seem to be Hmm. an equitable uh, distribution of funding. And my my friend and co-author, Andy Zimbalist, is far more of an expert at at the sustainability. But the book makes it very clear that the college football playoff is inequitable. It, it, uh, it predicts a very bleak future for the group of five, and that is, in fact, why BYU, um, who beat Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma in football, not once but twice while I was in the athletic department here, um, so very much wants to uh, join the the Power Five, and they may very well be able to do that someday. Hmm. Boy, it is a it is a it's a sticky wicket, isn't it? It's a tangled web because there's you know there's so much going on behind the scenes. And um, so very few people even know the numbers that you're giving us. It's, but it is, it's in trouble. It's, 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 you're saying it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable, and the NCAA really has departed from its mission of 
education and being complementary to the university. But in fact, it, it really, in many respects, drives the university um, rather than complements the university. And it is getting a, clearly getting away from its mission. When an athlete signs a national letter of intent, they make a contract with the university. And that is that the athlete will give his or her services uh, to the university for one to four years. And in return, in return, the school promises to educate the athlete. But what we have seen uh, in our studies and what I have seen in 31 years working in college athletics at senior level positions is that the athlete often settles for a second class education and they are there, they feel as though they are there just to be an athlete and the education is absolutely secondary. So while we see the occasional scholar, we also see so many who are wedged into majors that they really don't particularly want, uh, really didn't uh, set out to explore, and um, they simply took the path of least resistance to stay eligible under the direction of academic support programs. Hmm. Wow. Okay, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Gerald Gurney and his book, Unwinding Madness, What Went Wrong with College Sports and How to Fix It. He wrote the book with Donna Lopiano and Andrew Zimbalist. Uh, a pretty uh, intensive um, review of what's going on with the NCAA and, and uh, university programs when it comes to sports. Might be time to, you know, pull up the whole thing from the roots and rebuild it, according to our guests. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. On the phone with us is uh, Dr. Gerald Gurney. He's the author of the book Unwinding Madness, What Went Wrong with College Sports and How to Fix It. Uh, other co-authors on the book were Donna Lopiano and Andrew Zimbalist, some of the uh, those in the know, some of the best-researched um, experts on the field of college sports. And, uh, Gerald, again, thank you for your time and being with us. My pleasure, Matt. This um, One of the things about... The book uh, that I love, there are so many statistics in there. So you actually get you, – you get to read the real data about what the costs are, what percentage of schools are actually making money. But, Gerald, what, what do the schools that know they're not making money, that are underwater, that are losing money, what argument do they make for why they keep doing it? What's their rationale? Yeah, the rationale is uh, largely coming from the college president. And what he is saying is that uh, the being in big-time college sports 
puts a special emphasis on a university. And that 30-second spot um, on a nationally televised game or even a regionally televised game is invaluable to them. A couple of problems with that. Given the millions of dollars that are, pour millions and millions of dollars that are pouring into athletics, they could easily buy a spot uh, <laughs> during the Super Bowl and get uh, and, and still have a lot of change left over. Yeah, get a better return. Oh, absolutely. This is a bad investment. Um, and there is no doubt about it. The, the um, other issue with, with that, aside from it being a bad investment, is that while presidents are saying that they absolutely have to do that, they simply charge students or the expenses of operating uh, the athletic department and specifically football, men's basketball, which are the uh, vastly most expensive. Hmm. And they're doing it on the backs of the students. And that, that's the biggest issue that we uh, have in the book. Uh, this is student debt that is unnecessary and in today's society, when the cost of higher education is so expensive um, and we have progressives talking about free education um, for, for everyone, somebody's got to pay for this free education. And uh, do we really want to add more student debt so that it makes it more difficult for students to obtain higher education after all. We're supposed to be about higher education. Right. Now, we could make the argument that there is much that can be learned from athletic participation. We agree with that. Yeah. We love college athletics. We want to see it survive. But can we do it more efficiently and less costly without such um, a load on the backs of the students. Think about all of that money that's pouring in. If we could simply limit this escalating salary, it's gotten really out of hand when we're paying Krzyzewski nine, $10 million a year, when um, um, Sabin is making um, I don't know what he, he just got a new contract, yeah, he did. but it's getting close to $10 million, million a year. And then, of course, it's their entire staffs. We're now paying coordinators, offensive and defensive coordinators, well over a million dollars. We simply can't afford that, and there must be some limitations. Now, the only way to do, the only way to stop all of those challenges in the courts, which are now going on, essentially the argument is, why aren't you paying the athletes? Right. They're not getting a good education anyway. So if, if we want to do something about that, the only way to accomplish an antitrust exemption or a limited antitrust exemption is through Congress. And there we, and now <laughs> I, I hear all of the skepticism that we simply can't get that through through Congress. 
And that may or may not be true. But perhaps it is at least my hope that both Democrats and Republicans have a strong feeling about the value of education, and maybe they could get together someday, some way, and pass a limited conditional antitrust exemption, which would limit the, the spending and salaries, conditioned upon more benefits for the athletes, more focus on education, more focus on an independent governance of athletics, and uh, to begin fixing some of these extremely difficult problems. Because mm. there really, there's so much money in the brands. There's so much money in the, like the Under Armour kind of the apparel contracts that are just additive contracts as well. Um, it seems like you could just outsource your brand. Like you could, you know, the Longhorns could turn their brand over to another, an outside organization that just pays them to use their brand. Seems to me that one of the one of the directions that we find possible and even probable is these group is college sports splitting off. Yeah. Where we have a power five group of maybe sixty schools that play each other and essentially they're professional uh, teams and will ultimately just simply rent the stadium, call themselves uh, the University of Oklahoma, for example, would, would charge them to use their name yeah. to, rent their, to rent the stadium and just, and just do away with this pretense of this being amateur athletics because we know it's not. Right. And it has nothing to do with education. The other choice is to swing the pendulum back and make it more subservient to the university and to education. Boy, that would Obviously, be nice. That's what I prefer. Yeah. Well, I saw it, we saw it here at BYU when um, there used to be a college called Rick's College in Idaho that eventually became BYU-Idaho. And... Uh, it was owned by the LDS Church, and when they made it BYU-Idaho, one of the first things to go was their football program, their athletic programs. And I think based on the numbers, it just wasn't probably smart business, and it they went away. And the university's thriving. Now they're really known for doing a lot of online uh, training and development and classes and I mean, you sit there and you think, and, and that was made by an organization that is a church that's that's fiscally doesn't have all the money in the world and has to, you know, make smart decisions. It, right. It's and and didn't have to worry about some of the political impact. Yeah, and and we uh, we believe very strongly that it is time for colleges to evaluate where they are in terms of chasing. This uh, there's a chapter in which I talk about chasing Flutie. We remember the 1984, yeah. or, or was it 1986 or 1984? I don't remember. With Doug Flutie. But at any rate, Doug Flutie in the last six seconds of a Cotton Bowl launches a hail mary from his 48 yard line 
and it's caught by Gerard Phelan against University of Miami. He goes on to give national prominence to Boston College. Hmm. Well, there have been a lot of studies on the Flutie effect, and it turns out that it's a myth. <laughs> Pouring money into athletics doesn't necessarily mean, number one, you're going to win. What they found was that even if you win, um, it's short-term. The money, the money tends to go to athletics and not to the university, so it doesn't do the university much good. And when you lose, and that happens, you can count on it, um, the uh, donations dry up. And not only that, um, it does nothing for improving the long-term reputation of the university and the students that you, while you get more students applying after a championship, uh, these students tend to be of lower quality, hmm. academic quality. So in balance, it's a myth. And, and many, many scholars have determined that uh, over a period of time. Um, well, it's we've looked at that. Very carefully. Plus, there's the negative side too, oh, and we've got to wrap it up. But the sanctions, the some of the the cheating that has been found in some of these major universities, they go on a tear and win two or three national championships, and then you know sanctions against USC, against Ohio State, against Miami through the years. I mean, every university really. So. It's, it's out of control. There seems to be a, a, a very negative side as well. Gerald, as we wrap it up, what's, what would you say, is, is there anything we can just do? Should we be writing to our Congress people? What should we be doing if we want to be more involved in, um, in this, other than, of course, buying the book Unwinding Madness? I think if the general public would, would um, not be afraid to carefully examine what's going on in their athletic program, there is a bill that uh, has been uh, what they call dropped, offered in Congress, uh, Senator, or excuse me, Congressman Dent from uh, Pennsylvania is about to, to, what they call drop the bill again, calling for a presidential commission on uh, intercollegiate athletic reform. And uh, it's a, a, a bill that just begins to study what's going on in college sports. But um, the more activism um, individuals can do, the better. There is also a group called the Drake Group. I'm a former president of the Drake Group, which focuses on academic integrity in intercollegiate athletics. Hmm. And they it's drakegroup.org. They can look it up on the on the internet, um, and um, they'll see all of the work that that group is doing. So they can simply join that and become a voice in in restoring athletics to being complementary to universities rather than the tail wagging the dog. Yeah, love that. And, I mean, it's a great start, Gerald. Plus, just staying on top of it and uh, I think looking for your works and as well as your co-authors, Donna Lopiano and Andrew Andrew Zimbalist, great articles. We've had Andrew on the show before as well. Wonderful uh, insights, and we appreciate it, Gerald. Um, Folks, I mean, it's easy. It's entertainment. It's exciting. Come on. It's super exciting. And uh, it's not what it's always 
you know, what we think it is. Don't assume they're making money. Check into your universities. Find out what it's really costing us to, to keep this, these dreams alive. And does it really pay off? We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Again, hey, nobody loves a, a good football game, basketball game, sports than I do. I love attending the live events as well. And uh, even at BYU, I'm falling in love with other sports, soccer, as well as uh, volleyball, baseball, sports, college sports I didn't even know I'd be that into. But let's be real as well. We are setting up some expectations that it is profitable. And when you read and listen to the experts, they're not as profitable as you think. They are taking money from the education departments and uh, putting it in the sports departments and charging and and raising the cost of all the fees across the university. So it's costing people. Let's just be open to it. Make sure that uh, your kids' dreams are also in their ability to get a good education as well. That's, uh, the, that's the hour. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt, you're here, your coach, your guide on the side. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research or just access to some of the latest, greatest thinkers about life so that you can get the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. Today, by the way, no exception. We've got a wonderful guest coming up. Greg Trimble will be joining us. Dads Who Stay and Fight. That's the name of his book, How to Be a Hero for Your Family. Father's Day in two weeks. Father's Day in two weeks. So we're going to teach you how to stay and fight as a father. That's, I mean, that sounds bad. But fight for your family. Yes. We'll, we'll, get, uh, we'll have a great discussion with Greg. <laughs> His point being that too many are not. Yeah, we don't. They don't stick around, hmm. or or they're there, but they don't actually do the the fatherly role model type things that your kid and your family need you to be. You know what? Uh, it's easy to kind of disconnect as a father. Like yesterday, when I was showing my my kid, I go, "Here is a fidget spinner trick." He was trying to show me a trick. I showed him a trick. So see, I was leading. Did you now? Yeah. I'd love to see that trick. It's not really that good of a trick. He's okay. six. He's easily impressed. <laughs> you you got you to gotta be involved with your kids. I was – what was I doing? I was doing something and all of my family on Sunday night, they were all outside playing games. Hmm. And I was on the phone texting I think my other son that's out of town. And my daughter came in like saying, get out here. You need to be a father. Wow. All right. Jeez. Well, fine. Bossy. Get off my back. <laughs> then I'm going to spank you. And then I took her over my knee and. Oh, wow. No, I didn't. No, but just, okay. It's easy to just, you know, think you're doing a great job because you're texting one child but neglecting four. You know? It's, and there's these moments when you take your son to get stitches, for example. 
and you teach him the meaning of life. You teach him, you tell him about your scars, your stitches. You tell him about, ah, you'll be fine. You embarrass him in front of the nurse, saying, my son is wondering if this is going to make fewer ladies want to marry him. Wow. I said that to about my 12-year-old son, and then he hates me. He thought he called me a bully. He said, you were bullying me with the nurse. Really? And then I had to teach him what bullying really is about. (laughs) This is bullying. You call that bullying. (laughs) Anyway, dads, we got to step up. So we'll be talking about that. Also, we're celebrating Yo-Yo Day. Yo. Uh, isn't, she a, isn't he a cellist? Yo-Yo. Ma. Ma. Yeah. Different Yo-Yo. Yeah. Yo-Ma. That's different. The best Yo-Yo? Yeah. James Bond. One of the movies had a Yo-Yo. Like a razor blade. Turned into yo-yo. a big like saw blade thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of had a feeling you'd go it there. It tore up a pillow because they were... James Bond was sleeping, and they yeah shot right through the pillow. That was that was a good movie. I, I was like, that. "How do you catch that yo-yo?" That, that seems like just the you do the yo part, but you don't like do the reverse yeah. You don't, you don't bring it back up. Or, yeah, yeah, you just let that go. Well, the first few guys did. Yeah, it was it was problematic. It's, you it's, you could see they needed some sort of you know warning on there. Yeah, just some directives. Um, apparently, there is a game going on about how long you can stay in a in a Walmart without going crazy. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about the, that. The current record holder. I mean, are, I guess WalMarts are open at forty eight hour or twenty four hours a day, so people can just stay there all night. Well, you got to keep moving, but yeah. Why? See how long you could stay in there before someone tries to kick you out. Why? It's summertime. Why not? Kids aren't in school. This is what they do. This is what the internet has wrought. Hmm. People record this stuff, put it up so that people will watch it. So you do these things so you get views. It's kind of sad. It kind of is, but it's, it's a funny story. That's great. Because it's other people doing it. You don't have to do it. No, no. You don't have to do Nor it. Nor would you ever do that. No, no. It's beneath you. Right. You have things to do. I mean, we used to throw snowballs as kids. Right. We never thought of like going to a store and staying there as long as we could. Anyway, I guess we just aren't as cool as we used to be. I don't know why you would, but they know. do. We'll get to all of that, plus empty news. Uh, a lot of other news stories you didn't even know you needed to know about. But we're going to give them to you anyway. Plus, um, uh, of course, the headlines with Terry South. So let's start with the headlines, the, the news that probably does matter to you. Terry, what uh, what you got for us? Terrible news. Six people died in an RV awning manufacturer, Fiamma Inc., in uh, Orlando Monday when a disgruntled former employee shot five workers before turning the gun on himself. The shooter, 45-year-old man, had been fired from the company in April. The police have been called to the suspect previous on the suspect previously when he worked for the company over alleged assault of a co-worker in 2014. The uh, co-worker was not among the victims, that one that was in the 2014 situation. Police were summoned to the scene after a woman in the building ran to the tile store across the street to call 911 when the gunman told her she should go. Oh, terrifying. Police arrived at the building two minutes later. And uh, they, the quick response probably saved the lives of seven employees who walked away. The guy went in targeting certain people. He, he didn't did. shoot everyone randomly, just targeted certain people. Certain people. That, oh, uh, yeah. it's just tragic. Crazy news. That, was, that, that actually happened yesterday during the show, but no details. It was just sort of there was an incident going on. Other news, scientists have discovered a planet that's almost three times bigger than Jupiter. It's hotter than most stars in the solar system, and it sports a comet-like tail of gas. The planet, labeled Kelt 
B9, or 9B, was first spotted by telescope when it was clipped uh, past its host star, which is twice as hot as the sun and resides some 650 light years away from Earth. Hold on. 650 light years. Yes. Ah, so it'll take a while. Yeah, so never. Kelt 9B is the hottest exoplanet ever discovered. And to make it even more fascinating, one side of the planet is always shrouded in darkness, while the other side is always being scorched with light. It doesn't rotate. That planet is hot. The dayside temperature on the uh, locked planet is estimated at 7,800 degrees Fahrenheit. It's so hot that we think there is no molecules that can live on the day side of the planet, says a uh, professor from Ohio State whose team published their findings uh, last week. Wow. Yeah. They think that it's so hot. How hot is it? Right. That it will melt just the surface. Turns a, it actually makes the planet expand. So it's constantly it's like swelling. So yeah. it swells as big, you know, bigger than Jupiter. Uh huh. But there's nothing substantial underneath it, and yeah. it'll eventually just evaporate. <gasps> it's so hot. That is hot. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, in other news, for the second year in a row, data scientist has topped the list for the best job in America based on earning potential job satisfaction and number of openings, according to a survey by Glassdoor Jobs and Technology. Continue to be the best, along with data scientists. The other jobs at the top of the list are DevOps Engineer, which is short for Software Development and Information Technology Operations. Okay, yeah. So a bunch of stuff. Data Engineer, Tax Manager, and Analytics Manager. You might be forgiven for not knowing exactly what some of those are. A lot of numbers in those. A lot of math. Yeah. And that's probably the... Uh, that's one, why they're what, hot. That's what they're, why they're hot, because they're paying you for your skill that a lot of people don't have. Five, ten years ago, tech jobs were all about web and mobile development, which is largely about coding, says the uh, people from Glassdoor. To be successful now, these data-focused roles, you have to have an analytical mindset. The median-based salary for these jobs hovers around 110000 a year. Most jobs in these fields wow. include sizable benefit packages as well. That's great. You just have to do math. You just have to know how to you know, work with the numbers. And finally, you can't rush a good McChicken sandwich. Yet mm. having to wait for one caused a fight between an impatient customer and an employee at a McDonald's in Des Moines, Iowa. The brawl might have been forgotten uh, if it were not for the uh, Amanda Gravely, an intrepid customer waiting for ice cream in the drive-thru. She watched as a blonde woman inside the restaurant became irate over not having her McChicken right away. Gravely started filming and she finally received her sandwich and then promptly threw it in the employee's face. It just escalated so quickly, Gravely said. There were customers tumbling across the counter. Two men who were with her held employees back as she started pulling the other woman's hair, hitting her with her knee, all while her McChicken got cold on the floor. Before police could arrive, the customers took off. Authorities are now trying to identify everyone involved. There's one thing Gravely wants people to remember. Life is too short to get that mad over a chicken sandwich. Wow, really? And, of course, she was waiting in the drive-thru for ice cream. She was just trying to get ice cream. The ice cream machine was probably broken, and so it was going to be a long wait. There you go. It's, yeah. As somebody that hasn't been able to have a chicken sandwich for a while. Yeah. Life's too short. It's not worth fighting Just over. move on. Just, yeah. And it's fast food, so the chicken label's kind of questionable, too. So Hey, let me ask you this. Yeah. Because some people think that I'm <clears throat> cheating. Because I'm not. I'm supposed to have a low-fat diet. Um, let's say that I just put something in my mouth for a minute, okay, to taste it, mm. and then spit it out okay. before swallowing it. Right? Am I cheating? Did you consume it? I'm not sure. A little bit may have gone down my throat, but probably not enough to matter. Yeah. 
It didn't inflame my gallbladder. It's just a little chocolate. Like my wife is on a non-sugar bunch of other, other things diet. Yeah. She had a little piece of food, realized a mistake before she swallowed, spit it out. Hmm. And it's just, you know, contest in the office. So yeah. then it's like, did she just break the rules? Is she out? She's like, no, I didn't eat that. I didn't gain anything from it. I realized my mistake immediately and corrected it. But with her, it was a mistake. Matt is intentionally trying to skirt the system. Mm. Now, if you're like trying to, you know, take a bite of pizza, but I didn't swallow. No, I, I haven't had a bite of pizza, but I've definitely smelled a lot of it. And chicken. And you're, just... not, you're not eating it. It's not getting digested. It's, I mean, that's the whole problem with your... Mm-hmm. Is the digestion part, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's okay. not even happening. Good, You're cause, good. Because I thought that was close. You just say it's not digestion. This Back was off. chocolate, just a little bit of chocolate. And my wife is all over me. Like, if I say, I'm just going to have one of those donuts. Yeah, no. She's like, no. I didn't even get to celebrate donut day. Mm. Well. Sans donut. I'll tell you what. My <sighs> steak last night was really good. Mm, sounds like it. Thanks. Yeah. I have donuts as well. <laughs> You know what I want is a steak. I want good. I want a, a steak, a sweet, sweet potato. Okay. Uh, Anywho, um, so my wife and I went looking <laughs> for furniture the other day, and a buffet. We went for furniture, and we went uh, we went looking for couches, and then what it did is it opened up a huge can of worms. Because you can't choose your couches till we decide what color carpet we get, and we can't decide what color carpet till we decide if we're going to paint. Do you agree with this, or is this? Well, it, all I wanted was new couches. Gotcha. But we need to paint, and we need to get yeah. everything done. So now it's getting ugly. Then my son needs a new bed. Mm. So we tested beds, and can I just say they need? It's really embarrassing to test a bed. You know what I mean? It's kind of a personal thing. You kind of need to jump in and roll around a little bit, yeah. And I I don't sleep in my clothes, so I have to get in my jammies. (laughs) But um, Get your little stocking cap It's just weird sitting on the bed with your wife Mm. and then having like the guy sit on the bed with you and then give you the talk about the springs, how they're all individually wrapped. When you go to the mattress store. Go ahead. Lay down. You're like, what? Uh, Mm. Like, can you just give us a minute? (laughs) Like, we need to talk about this privately. But I found out that at the store, there was a $12,000 bed. Mm. And then I thought to myself, who sleeps on a $12,000 bed? That's ridiculous. Nobody needs a $12,000 bed. Then I tested it. Right. And I'm like, I want to buy a $12,000 bed. Is it the bed or the mattress? It's it's a mattress. You, the bed is just it, sort of it, the it's just It's all the mattress. But this is a mattress that pretty much does everything. It'll even sleep for you. Oh, wow. But you feel like you're you're literally in a cloud floating. Mm. And like I think I heard an airplane pass while I was nice. testing it. Yeah. Um, and it'll recline and set, sit up for you. It'll do everything for you. Um, but then – so I thought that was weird. Then I just found online on Inc. Magazine that you can buy a, a toilet that costs $10,000. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, sometimes you need music. No. No, that's not what it is. You can bring your own music. When, whenever they do that, it's like there's like it's like got Bluetooth, so you can you know sync your phone up to your toilet or something. I'm not sure. The the website Toto, okay, has a toilet that's worth ten thousand two hundred dollars. It's a Japanese manufacturer. The music oh. that you sync plays called, exclusively Roseanne and Africa. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's called Neo Rest 750H Dual Flush Toilet. 
Ooh. Dual flush. Uh, it's got a torni- tornado siphon jet flushing system. <laughs> wow. So it, not only is it a tornado, but it also is a siphon. Nice. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. It's got Actolite UV light cleaning system built in in the lid, so it, it that, self-cleans. That's high quality. Yeah, yeah. with UV. Yeah. Uh, it's got a backup manual flush mm. if if you, like I guess, <laughs> lose power. Right. It's these got, are all plugged in, yeah. This is one that I know Cole will like. It's got e-water, it, which mists the bowl with electrolyzed water mm-hmm. to oh, reduce cleaning. Yeah. It's heated. Oh. It's got a purifying system. <laughs> it's got a bidet. Oh, yeah. With adjustable temperature, position, pressure, and direction control. Mm. And an automatic lid so the ladies don't have to complain. <laughs> so – uh, things you don't need. Ten thousand dollars. Like Worth honestly, it, yeah. if people have ten thousand dollars for a toilet, yeah, you know, you need to give to charity. Something because you're just throwing money away at that point. Yeah, flushing it down the drain. But it would be a a nice once in a lifetime experience. Probably, it's, but it seems dangerous too. Like it's like a spa pe- day. Do people have to like sign a? A, a disclaimer, waiver? a waiver when they go use it. The tornadic system, yeah. Look, I can't, I can't guarantee you won't be sucked into my tornado siphonic toilet. And I'm not sure I would even like the heated seat. It's always a little awkward when, yeah. when the seat's weird. a little warm when you sit down. Yeah. Like, oh, what's going on? Yeah, seat these are warm. these are uh, exactly. If you have that much money. There's yeah. probably a better use for it because you don't need it. Well, and then what's going to just... happen when your kids go out into the real world and they're like, "Ooh, that seat is cold." Right. You know, just a normal toilet. You're setting your children up for failure. They won't even be able to go to the bathroom. Man. Anyway, man, first world problems, huh? Crazy stuff. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about dads and uh, the book "Dads Who Stay and Fight: How to Be a Hero for Your Family." The author, Greg Trimble, up next. Welcome back, friends. You know, Father's Day is coming up on June 18th. So we thought it would be the perfect time to talk about dads and uh Give you a little leg up so you can get ahead of the game. Make sure you're focusing on getting your dad taken care of and, and really celebrating what he's done for you. To, to do that, we've asked Greg Trimble to join us from gregtrimble.com. Greg Trimble uh, is a writer. He writes about business, religion, and life. He founded a tech company, sold the company, and is now fully focused on building Yala, which is an online team uh, management system, and Lemonade Stand, which is an online marketing agency. And through all of this, he wrote a book. He's the author of a book, Dads Who Stay and Fight, and we're honored to have him on the show. Greg, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. You bet. What? How you doing? Good, great. Doing well. What? What's? Uh, what are you? What was the motivation? What makes a guy like you, Greg, who's really an entrepreneur, starting all these businesses, all these companies? Why? Why write a book about dads? Man, I think because of out of all those things, uh, I, actually, all those things are done in my mind in order to provide and uh, you know and to be a dad. I don't think any of those things would have much meaning to me if I wasn't uh, striving to do that. I mean, it really is the most important role we can play, I think, as as a mom or a dad on this earth. And the name of the book, Dads Who Stay and Fight, How to Be a Hero for Your Family. What do you mean by dads who stay and fight? Yeah, so 
I think that uh, I think that men nowadays have have gotten sort of this this role, and the media has played a, a huge role in that. But it, it's kind of taken on this this role of of being the the late kind of like the the Al Bundy's is, is like the where when was that the eighties? Yeah, <laughs> Just, yeah you know, the guy that sits on the on the couch and you know does nothing. And uh, you know his wife is expected to do everything to to look perfect, to to work, to take care of the kids, and the dad just kind of sits there. And we've gotten into this sort of complacent male figure role, <laughs> I think, in the world. And and there's just too many that that leave. There's too many single moms. There's too many uh, women left in in shambles and and heartache. And so I, you know, and then the kids, the kids are in the middle of it all, and and. There's, you know, I think in, in the beginning of the book, I talk about some percentages and, and people that, and the amount of people that are actually, kids that are actually growing up without fathers in the home. So. Yeah. And then, and then too, I mean, even having, sometimes you can have a dad in the home that, but it's, the dad maybe is busy, the dad is preoccupied, not, he's out working and not there a lot. So really, yeah. part, part of your book is about how to be a hero for your family. And what I love is you, you touch on a lot of um, a lot of things I believe in strongly. One of the chapters I know in your book, you talk about dads who are emotionally intelligent. Um, talk yeah. about that. What do you mean by emotionally intelligent? We talk about it on the show a bit, but what do you mean, and uh, why does that make such a big difference? Yeah, so sometimes you, you hear dads get the, the, uh, the label of, of being oblivious, <laughs> yeah, being an oblivious parent, you know, you're just kind of not keying into situations. I think um, being emotionally intelligent is is somebody that can can really read. You know, in the business world, you might say that they can read a room, but in your family, that you can read, uh, you know, the thoughts and emotions, and and really dig into situations that you may need to get in there and and address with both a son or a daughter, you know, and each, each of them are going to be different. And, and especially with your wife, you know, being able to read the emotions on her face, the, the feelings and, and try to try to get in there and, and do something about it and make a better situation than, than sort of sit back and not do anything at all. Just be the, <laughs> yeah. the stone, stone face, the rock in there. So. And, and being able to read the cues and see the, and, and I guess be a, an active part. We we uh, had a guest on a while ago that talked about, you know, dads more and more, they're becoming, they're, they're stepping up like they've never stepped up as far as taking care of child care and doing things that they've, they've um, they historically haven't been so involved in, bathing the kids, changing the kids, doing all of this. Yeah. And yet, and still there's there's the emotional side of it that I guess we're still learning as well, but part of what you're suggesting is it, it is learnable. Just keep working at it till you learn it. Yeah, totally, totally. Is you also bring up a point about um, dads who who take marriage advice? I I have a lot of um, people that come to my date nights and my events, and when I you can tell the guys that have been dragged there by their wives. But they they actually like learning. They they like learning what we're teaching, um, and so why do you sense that makes such a big difference? Uh, because 
traditionally you hear about guys kind of being stubborn, right? The, the guys that don't, they never want to go to marriage counseling. They, they don't want to take direction, you know, ask for directions. You get that sort of uh, trademark guy syndrome, I guess. And, uh, and I think just being, being open and being consistently uh, worried about improving your marriage rather than just going through the motions is, is something that's important you know, especially for guys, because I think women, they, I, I feel like they're always trying to work on things. You know, they, you know, they're trying to, they're willing to take advice. They're willing to, to be open and listen. And sometimes you get guys that aren't willing to do that. And, and then the marriage stays stagnant. You know, if you're not improving over time. So true. Do you, um, do you notice as a writer um, and and somebody that's really involved in tech, I know, and because uh, you have a lot of kind of tech focused companies, and you sold a tech company, what do you what do you sense of this kind of new tech age? There's a lot of great blessings, a lot of great benefits that come from technology, and yet, um, boy, it complicates parenting in a way. I mean, there's some pretty cool things you can now do. Now you can track your kids, find out exactly where they are. <laughs> And you can even see what they're writing. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can do. But what do you yeah. think – what's the impact, you think, on being a dad and technology? And what's a special role that dads can have when it comes to getting their kids to effectively use technology? Oh, that's a great question. There's actually an entire chapter in the book called Dads you know, Dads and Technology. And uh, I think that technology can be – well, I know my kids are into it because I'm into it. Yeah. And they, they see me doing it and they say, oh, man. And so actually a, a few Christmases ago, my kids got iPads. And we said, oh, yeah, you'll be able to use it for homework and things like that. And what we found, I'm I'm on my phone, I'm on my my laptop and, and a lot of things. But a lot of the things that I'm doing on those things are, are actually creative um, and they're they're productive and they're they're contributory and but a lot of the things that kids are doing on there are are consuming they're they're consumptive things um and that was a big thing that a lot of the tech CEOs the 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 Steve Jobs and and some of the the founders of some of these tech companies of the the very technology that we're using they're actually talking about how they don't let their kids use their own technology that they created be, because they're so aware of the addictive nature of it and i I remember watching my, my son would really get into it and he would play, you know, games and these apps and there's always a new app to download. And I would see him like kind of fixing his neck, you know, like it's like his <laughs> neck is hurt. Yeah. And, and the difference between the days that we grew up, you know, with Atari and Nintendo, you know, you only had a few games. You had to blow in the games to get them to work. If they didn't work, big deal. We go out and ride our bikes. But nowadays, uh, at least in California, I don't know how it is in Utah or other places, but at least in California, a lot of people aren't outside riding bikes or doing the, those things. No, right. And it's they sad. take their devices, and it's not like a – even like a video game, Nintendo or something, where you're playing with some friends, they'll take their iPads, and they can go away by themselves and literally be gone for hours and hours and hours and never pick their head up. And I just think it's it's so addictive. I, I've watched it be addictive, and so we've actually t- taken any any iPads away from our kids and not 
you know, not let them use them, you know, by themselves just because it's such a consuming, consuming thing. Oh, no. And I, I think I think it's smart. And again, that's from a tech. That's from a guy that sold a tech company. Um, is it when you think about being a dad? I mean, there's there's just a lot of moments. Uh, just the other an example the other night. I came home um, from shooting a video that I was shooting, and I was tired. It was uh, – what was it? Friday night, I believe, and I'm exhausted. And uh, I get home. We're having dinner. My wife and I, I then – we get a call. My wife says, oh, our son just hit his head bouncing on a trampoline and bada boom, bada bing. <laughs> Next thing I know, we're spending three hours in an emergency room getting stitches. And wow. I, I sit there and I think, what a waste of a night. You know, <laughs> you're sitting there and <laughs> spending all this money. But part of it that was really interesting is it was three hours with my son in a moment where he was afraid, terrified at first. And uh, we were able to eventually calm him down and, and make it work. But, I mean, it's almost like those are the moments of parenting that are going to stand out, it seems like, down the road. Oh, yeah, totally. And not something and, I wanted. Was, no, no, but it's those moments that they'll remember, I, I believe. Um, and it, that's pointed out there in the book. There was a guy that, um, you know, taking his son on vacations all over the place and, and everything. And he just said, he asked his son, you know, what was it that that stood out to you the most during childhood, you know, or, or during a vacation? It was just laying on the on the lawn just talking to you, looking at the stars. And that caught, that literally costed nothing. I remember there's a story of Lindsay about Lindsay Sterling in the book as well. She said that when they grew up, they had no money Hmm. and uh, she was forced to be creative. And she said, you know, one of the things that she remembered the most about her dad, one of the things that she and memories she enjoyed the most was just eating a bowl of cereal with him on the, on the living room floor, you know, (laughs) super, super, super simple things that don't cost a lot of money. You don't need to be rich. You don't need to, you know, buy them their pony or, or whatever it is. Just super, super simple things, um, that, that can make such an impact in a child's life and, and cause them to, you know, remember you uh, sort of legal, leave a legacy, be a hero. Yeah. And, and inspire them to do great things. And then like with Lindsey Sterling, now uh, one of the biggest YouTube stars out there, and somehow has managed yeah. to figure out how to dance and play the violin. <laughs> but I mean, really, yeah, that's I probably... that works. I know, I don't either, but that's some of that creativity that she probably learned by, you know, having a dad that has to make ends meet. Let's take a break. We're exactly. speaking with Greg Trimble. Um, you can go to his website, gregtrimble.com. Uh, he's a blogger, a writer, and has written the book... Dads Who Stay and Fight, How to Be a Hero for Your Family, setting you up with some ideas and some information about how to celebrate your dad um, come June 18th. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, folks. We are uh, talking about um, dads and the important role they play. We're talking about the book Dads Who Stay and Fight, How to Be a Hero for Your Family. And the book was written by Greg Trimble. Greg, uh, you can find out more about what he's doing at gregtrimble.com, T-R-I-M-B-L-E.com. And Greg uh, was a business owner, sold his business, and also now has started a couple of other businesses as well. He, um, But he loves writing and is the author of Dads Who Stay and Fight, and as well as a, a blog that you can find at uh, gregtrimble.com. Um, that, that I think opens up some pretty interesting discussions as well. One of them we'll talk about uh, is the importance and the role of women in our lives. But, Greg, thank you again for being with us. You bet, Matt. This um, – was it was – it, I mean, I guess when you love being a dad, this book was probably fairly easy to write. I mean, there's there's a lot of – there's a lot of stuff. You talk about dads who prioritize, dads who know how to invest, dads who discipline. In the book, you've got a lot of great chapters on uh, on areas where where dads can can be a powerful leader. How did you how did you gather the information, and where did the stories come from? Well, you, you were you're you're right. It was easy to write. It's a topic that is so uh, near and dear to me, and and it's just stories that have you know, since being a dad and from my own childhood that have impacted me so much that they were sort of just in my brain and I just brain dumped them onto paper and organized them. Yeah. <laughs> it was about 30 to 45 days that that thing was written in. So, um, it, it, yeah, definitely. I, uh, you know, and starting to, when in writing my blog is where I, a lot of those things came into, to be. And, Honestly, Matt, you know, we, you don't know this, this is the first time we're talking and, but, but we have a very, uh, you have a very unique role in my writing of this book. Really? You have no idea that you do. What? Tell Uh, me, I'd love to know. Let me read something to you, actually. It's actually a chapter out of a book that's going to be launched in, uh, at Thanksgiving of this year. The book is called The Virtual Missionary, and it, it goes into talking about the origins of, of starting my blog and and how it picked up and caught fire and, and went viral um, over again. So check, check this out, Matt. This is super inter- I think you'll find this interesting. Yeah. Out of this chapter, it, it's a chapter on ego and, and other bloggers sort of competing with each other and trying to protect their turf and all that stuff. But here it goes. It says, just a couple of months after I had started writing my blog, I wrote an article on improving marriages. I was brand new to social media and brand new to blogging. I figured no one would read it because, well, who am I to give advice about marriage? I'd only been married for about eight years and still had a lot to learn. But I wrote from the heart, and oddly enough, those things resonated with a few people. When I actually published the blog, I could tell through Google Analytics that there were a few people reading it. I was surprised and happy to to have struck a chord with a few readers, but then something crazy happened. I took a peek back at the real-time analytics for my blog, and it had gone viral, and it shot up almost immediately. I couldn't figure it out. Where had all this random traffic come from? So I started digging around and found a BYU TV co-host by the name of Matt Townsend had shared this article I had posted about marriage to his 40,000-plus Facebook fans. I didn't know him. He didn't know me, and I was a virtually unknown blogger. But he was nice enough to share share that article so that others could read it. No way. Thought the article was good, so he shared it. 
He wasn't jealous that he didn't write it. He wasn't trying to, quote, unquote, protect his brand or take any credit for the work himself. He was simply sharing something that he felt would be valuable to his friends. He gave credit where credit was due. He wasn't worried about diluting the Internet with other online bloggers and content creators. He wasn't trying to protect his piece of Internet turf. He unselfishly knew that there was plenty of room for each of us on the Internet and that there's a need for more people to share more goodness. He had the respect and trust of, of a great many people, and so they listened to him. And because he shared this one article of mine, now they took what I had written seriously. This was an act of a man who cared about helping others, not someone who was in it for themselves. Oh, that's so, cool. Wow. If you look at, if you, look at you, you don't realize that. Yeah. That, that happened about three years ago. My blog had, had nothing. I mean, I, I just wrote and... For some reason, you had seen it and shared it, and that was one of the. Uh, and, and that blog was about marriage. It was, I think, it was some five ways to make your marriage rock or something yeah. like that. That's and awesome. a lot of those principles became the foundation for what's actually in this book and many other blogs that I've written since. On and that blog has just, I mean, it's been in the last three years or so. It's been viewed over. Seven million times or That's so amazing. throughout the world, and, and changed a lot of lives. And if you could see the messages, and so you can give yourself a pat on the back. No, that's huge <laughs> because you really don't. We and we do that all the time. And I, I never, I don't think of that impact. Um, I just, yeah, I, I want to get the message out. In fact, that's how we found you again. Was I, uh, I found another blog or two that you've written. Um, one that I wanted to ask you about, which is. Um, Women and in fact, I'm trying to pull up your blog right here. Women and uh, there's a there's a restaurant chain that is has kind of been objectifying women uh, in how they eat a hamburger. And, <laughs> and you wrote you wrote a, you wrote an entire blog entry about Carl's Jr. Talk about that. What made you get onto that topic? Well, in the blog, it, in that blog, it talks about my wife. Well. I mean, that that chain, you know, Carl's Juniors, they've been known for, uh, and Hardee's, they've they've just been known for the just horrendous commercials, uh, at least for for people that are offended by that sort of thing, um, where women have just been objectified. The, the commercials had nothing to do with food, and it kind of came to the, the reason I wrote about it is kind of came to a point because my my wife and kids I weren't I, I wasn't actually there at this restaurant but my wife and kids were at a restaurant and it was actually sort of a kids restaurant yeah and they, there were things on the TV where they were good for kids and then a commercial comes on <laughs> and my wife described it to me and she said my kids were sitting there just staring at the TV and I like I didn't know what to do and it was just the most horrendous. I got a daughter and I got a son, so the daughter's looking at the way these women are acting, and my son's looking at it like, "What am I supposed to do? What is this good or bad? What is it?" And um, and so she had to teach him, and so I just I was sort of fed up, and so I wrote about it, um, starting out with I used to eat Carl's Jr. all the time. There's a place near Trestles Beach where I would surf all the time. There's a Carl's Jr. right there, and it was just I loved it, and it's right by my office. I'd eat all the time, and then. I was like, you know what? I just, I just don't want to support that anymore. You know, if that's the way they're going to be and, and market that way. And yeah. So, um, you know, I wrote the blog, and that went, it went just crazy. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people just immediately jumped on board, 
and the, they, it set off sort of a tweet storm where there were thousands upon thousands of people. There was an embedded tweet inside the blog that says, uh, although I think the tweet said, love your food, hate the commercials at Carl's Jr. So attack. Every time somebody tweeted that, it tagged them. And so I know that my my Twitter notification feed was just blowing up, which huh. means theirs would have to as well because their Twitter handles being mentioned over and over again. And and there were just hundreds and thousands of people that just sort of jumped on this, you know, this sort of this boycotting of this of this sort of marketing. And uh, funny enough, you know, they've they changed. changed their, and I don't know if it's—I can't take credit for you know that kind of impact, but it was—it was significant. And I'm sure there's been—I know there's other groups and people that have, but they just admitted that that that, that marketing is not working for them anymore. And so you you gotta give people a hand for for sort of standing up for principles. Well, there's a good there's a good chapter for you, dads, and I mean it is actually in the book, uh, but dads who start a revolution. I mean, the reality yeah. is all, sometimes all you need to do is is take a stand or, or make a comment and do it yeah. the way you did it by writing a blog entry and getting it out there. I mean, others can do other things. Yeah, totally. Is yeah. I, I mean, I guess that's the key to this is every, every dad's going to be different. Every person will be different. Um, we, I guess we just need to figure out what kind of dad we want to be and then start working for it. No doubt. No doubt. And for me, it's, it, that's everything. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you make at the end of the day. It doesn't matter how many accolades, how important you are in the eyes of the world. It's, it's when you lay your head down on that pillow and your, and your family surrounds you. And you, the only thing you're going to care about was, does my wife and kids love me and respect me? And did I leave a legacy to them? Not did I leave a, a bunch of money to them? Not did I leave assets to them? And it's going to be, do they love me and respect me? And are they going to revere me, you know, as I move on? Yeah, no, that's great stuff. Well, Greg, uh, it's an honor talking to you. I'm glad uh, we've connected before as well. I didn't know that. And I look forward to the future connecting so much more with you. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. You bet. It's been great. You bet. Everybody, go check out his website, gregtrimble.com. And the book, Great or uh, Dads Who Stay and Fight, How to Be a Hero for Your Family, uh, probably a really good opportunity to get your dad a book. Um, all the many things that dads are valuable for and bring to all of us. Make sure you are planning ahead. We're giving you a, head, you know, a heads up. You've got till the 18th to get the present that would be ideal for dad. And maybe what might be most important for your father is just a letter, a card telling him how you really feel about him and the change that he made in your life. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll wrap up this hour. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, uh, dads, there's a lot of research. We talk about it on the show a lot uh, through the years, over the years, 
about the the role that a dad plays in the life of their children. And a lot of the things we do might irritate mom a bit, right? Like, why do we always overstimulate the kids at night? But uh, one of my favorite learnings about the power of what a father does is um, is about emotional intelligence. Fathers tend to, as we are a little more rough with the kids, as we push them a little harder, the research shows that we help children learn to emotionally regulate. You may notice that sometimes dads push so hard on their kids that they end up making them cry. They end up causing, you know, the breakdown of the child. But part of what we are um, looking for as as a as a father really is and we're not doing it intentionally but we we have a valuable role to play if i can get my child to manage their their moments in life when they get overstimulated and learn how to bring down that state of stimulation so that they don't react and become out of control and overreactive which a father helps their child do according to research then that child will be more emotionally uh, able to deal with the trials of of reactivity in the future. Dads make a big difference there. And it's a very simple thing in just how we play. It's a simple thing in how we sometimes allow the child to do riskier things than maybe mom might allow. It's powerful. And so be really careful when you're thinking about fathers and uh, assuming that your child doesn't need a father or a male role model. Um, there is something, too, I think that's a little different about a, a dad that will, you know, aggressively play and wrestle with the kids. And, and like, I don't know that I would necessarily wrestle with my kids' friends as a dad, but with my kids, we wrestle and we we do stuff and we play ball and we test each other and I push the limits. And so don't ever underestimate the power of a father. And again, if you don't have uh, if you're, you know, if your your child's father's not in the home, find ways to still have male role models around to still get people in the neighborhood in the community. Um, my parents, because they were divorced, my dad didn't live in the home, but I saw my dad almost every day, so I received a lot of influence from him growing up. But I also got to see other people's fathers and friends of mine and their fathers would watch out for me. They would make sure that I would go to the camping trips. They'd make sure that I would do the things with our church group. And honestly, one of the greatest examples for me of a father was um, uh, one of my church leaders, a, a young men's leader that was over the youth of the of our ward, our, our church group. And he ended up being the guy that got in my head that I'm going to school. I did not know that I could go to college. None of my sisters at the time uh, really had gone to college. Actually, one of them started going to college, and um, she was just finishing when I was hearing this from my my leaders. And I'm thinking, I'm going to go to college? Like, I did not know that I could do that. And I doubted my ability to do that until a man, an adult male that was responsible for watching over me and my church group said, no, 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 you're for sure going to college. Yeah, I mean, that's just what you do. And he just set the expectation. So whether whether it's your own father or it's someone else's, gentlemen, we got to pick up our game. Kids need us. We've got to we've got to be home. We can't just you know have children and then not be there. We've got to find a way to raise and be a part of 
the lives of our children and our children's friends. One of my favorite ways I've ever found to influence my sons, so I have a daughter and five boys, is by influencing their friends. If I can, when I get them in the car with me, I'm going to get to know these kids. I am going to influence their lives positively so that they know that they can eventually come talk to me if they need to. I'm going to be there for them one way or another. And so I just challenge all of us. Let's not just make Father's Day that's on the 18th, something we only celebrate on the 18th. You've got a a couple weeks to be taking care of your dads, talking about dads. Hey, dads, you've got a couple weeks to be stepping up and picking up your game so that we can make a difference. That's what this is about, being the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll be back one more hour straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. (laughs) 